This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. One of the great uh, 20th century preachers from England, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was the minister of Westminster Chapel in London for almost 30 years, so twice as long as I've been rector at Ascension. Um, But he said this, everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. God knows it is very much easier to preach than it is to pray. I agree. The great thing about having a retreat on prayer is that you can't book an expert because, in a sense, there's no such thing. Uh, We're all beginners, all amateurs when it comes to prayer. And yet the truth is that to be a Christian is to be someone who prays. Prayer is, if you like, a bit like swimming. You can talk about it, you can read about it, you can watch other people swim. But the only way to swim is to get in the water and start swimming. Well... I'm not an expert swimmer, but I can swim, and I do swim. I'm not an expert prayer, but I can pray, and I do pray. And I guess in that, I'm probably in pretty good company with you all tonight. Most, if not all of us, are those who pray, sometimes fervently, often falteringly. We gather together tonight as those who know at the deepest level of our being the absolute necessity to pray and probably as those who are easily distracted when we pray. Anybody ever get distracted when they pray? Just me and two others? Okay. Oh, no, okay. You're you're having a little siesta. That's all right. Um, And likely... I hope many of you here have experienced times of real intimacy and and communion with God in your prayers. And you've probably often struggled with prayer. Maybe you've known seasons of kind of barrenness. Well, I want to say right at the beginning tonight that we are in this together. And this weekend, we're going to be talking about prayer, obviously. We're going to be thinking about prayer, but most importantly we're actually going to pray. And so there'll be lots of opportunities to do that. Some of them are in your booklet, and you'll hear about them as we go on. But our hope for this weekend is that we will experience three things. Three things. One, that we will learn something about prayer, either for the first time or as a reminder of something that we knew already, but we hear or experience afresh. So that's the first thing, that we'll learn something about prayer. The second thing is that we will all pray each day this weekend, today, tomorrow, Sunday, in, with other people, um, on your own, all together. And then thirdly, that we will go home on Sunday, or if you have to leave sooner, whenever, uh, inspired, equipped, and ready to build or rebuild habits of prayer that will stick and make a difference in our lives. So I hope we'll learn something. I hope we will pray, and I hope we'll go home ready to enter into and engage with a new habit. And that's for our benefit as individuals. It's for the benefit of our church family. And ultimately, it's for the benefit of the kingdom of God. 
And so tonight's question is this. Why pray? And I want to offer five reasons. Five reasons why we pray. And the first is this. We can't not pray. Now, I know that's a double negative and might sound a bit weird, but at some base level, prayer is natural. It's essential. It's almost, almost a part of our hard wiring as human beings made in the image of God. Asking the question, why pray, is a bit like asking why breathe, or why eat, or why drink, or why talk, or why listen. As Martin Luther wrote, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. There is a sense in which we, as Christ followers, cannot not pray. Now, I know that prayerlessness and struggles with prayer are often all too real and all too common. And yet, at some level, prayer is fundamental. It is basic. It's essential for who we are as, as people made in the image of God. And this is true for people of a myriad different faith backgrounds and even of no faith background. Tim, in Tim Keller's book, Prayer, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God, which, by the way, I commend you as an excellent resource, he writes this. In the great monotheistic religions of Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, prayer is at the heart of what it means to believe. Muslims are called to pray five times a day, while Jews have traditionally prayed three times a day. Each branch of the Christian church is saturated with various traditions of common prayer, private prayer, and pastoral prayer. And prayer is not, of course, limited to monotheistic religions. Buddhists use prayer wheels, which fling prayers for compassion into the atmosphere in order to knit the spiritual and natural to relieve suffering and release kindness. Uh, while Hindus may pray for help or peace in the world to any of several gods, the ultimate goal is union with the supreme being, Brahman, and escape from the cycle of reincarnation. And he has a whole load more examples. Uh, but then he concludes by saying, even, even deliberately non-religious people pray at times. Studies have shown that in secularized countries, prayer continues to be practiced not only by those who have no religious preference, but even by many of those who do not believe in God. One 2004 study found that nearly 30% of atheists admitted they prayed sometimes, and another found that 17% of non-believers in God pray regularly. 17th century French mathematician, physicist, inventor, writer, and theologian, whose name is? Plays Pascal, thank you. Uh, famously spoke, and it's a paraphrase, but of this God-shaped hole in every human heart. All that is to say that countless people around the globe experience a yearning for more than the material world can ever provide. Hence why my first point is we can almost not help but pray. The existential questions of who am I and why am I here tug at our very souls. Now, of course, not everyone would agree with me. Not everyone would um, experience this. I'm sure there are convinced and committed atheists who wouldn't pray even if caught in the proverbial foxhole. But this notion that we can't not pray begs the question well, what is prayer? Clearly not 
all prayer is the same and the object of one's prayers are also not the same. But at its most basic, prayer is, however fumbling and stumbling, it is communicating, communication with God. Reformation theologian John Calvin wrote, Believers do not pray with the view of informing God about things unknown to him or of exciting him to do his duty, or of urging him as though he were reluctant. On the contrary, they pray that they may arouse themselves to seek him, that they may exercise faith in meditating on his promises, that they may relieve themselves from their anxieties by pouring them into his bosom. So at its most basic, prayer is communication with God. And that's not just through words. For as we can communicate with another person in many ways we do so um, well in all kinds of ways that's the whole point and so too we can communicate with God with or without words you know I, I used to get worried that if I was on a walk thinking and praying and and kind of conversing with God as I as I walked did it count you know you know my, my head wasn't bowed my, my hands weren't folded I wasn't on my knees my eyes weren't closed and uh one time, I actually shared this with my spiritual director, who very kindly laughed when I told him this and, and said to me, uh, yes, Jonathan, it, it counts. <laughs> I'm really glad that it counts because my regular walking is actually one of my favorite times to spend with God. And I'm learning also, uh, uh, rather slowly, uh, being an incorrigible extrovert, uh, about praying with silence and with contemplation. I'd rather be walking, you know. Um, so back to our question for tonight. I'm going to repeat the points briefly as we go through. Why pray? Because first, we can't not pray. Second, we pray to express our relationship with God. Augustine states, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. There is so much in the scriptures that express this longing for relationship with God. The Psalms are a great example and resource for us. They are, of course, the most ancient prayer book. Uh, it's a book of poems, of songs, and prayers that we have at our fingertips. And tonight, let me just share one to illustrate this point about wanting to have some connection and intimacy and relationship with God. Um, Psalm 27, verse 4 and 5. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I wonder, have you ever experienced a sense of closeness and intimacy with God, like the psalmist speaks of there and in many, many other places? One time, for me, when I particularly experienced the closeness and presence of God was three years ago now um, on a leadership retreat in Colorado. I wrote about this in The Ascent, but I know not everybody reads The Ascent. Um, and um, I tried to read it. Um, we, we spent... Uh, we, we, was, we were there for a week, and part of this, we had four nights camping at 12,000 feet. It was freezing cold, by the way, and we were just at the snow line, between the kind of tree line and the snow line. Um, and it was very remote. We didn't see anybody else except those in our small group uh, for the whole time we were there. Um, and so our days began in the chilly mountains with morning prayer, and they ended with 
evening prayer around the campfire. But the highlight for me was on the last day. We had been uh, sent out for a time to be completely on our own. Uh, no cell phones, no, well, they didn't work anyway, no, no watches. So I really don't know how long we were out there, probably six or seven hours. We had been fasting and praying. Um, and as we left, we were handed um, some pieces of paper. And I thought, oh, great, we've got some notes from the little reflection we'd had to set this day up. So I, I you know, took, took them off, found my quiet solitude spot. And then I, I began to read them. And I couldn't believe it, because completely unbeknown to me, someone organizing this had reached out, I think, probably to Marilyn. Was it you, Marilyn? Yeah, and had it asked for people to, to write words of kind of affirmation uh, on this sheet. So I had about 12 of these. I can't, they were come, they'd come in through in, in emails. Um, and the words were deeply encouraging. They were, they were very consoling to me um, in that, on that occasion. And, and, you know, as I was reading, I started to... There were, like, lots of pages. So I started to do this, because I'm thinking... Because they're all affirming, right? So I'm thinking, where, where do we get to the growth areas? You know, <laughs> they could do better at. Um, you know, because I thought, that has to be there, right? Except it wasn't. I mean, not, by the way, not because I don't have any. Clearly, I have many. Um, but... It was extraordinary. I was actually overcome. I just was weeping. I had to stop at one point because I couldn't see um, because of my tears. And, and some of the childhood tapes, I mean, I think we all have, well, you probably don't have tapes if you're children. You have digital clips. But some of the digital clips uh, from childhood that play in my head on a regular basis saying things like, Jonathan must try harder. They were kind of erased and replaced with this sweet, sweet music. Um, in the days leading up to this, we, one of the things we've been doing was reflecting on our sense of calling, our sense of where we believe God had equipped us and, and gifted us. And some of the things that I'd written in my journal were being spoken back to me by people I had no idea were involved in this process at all. And um, it, was, it was remarkable. Um, and in the hours that followed, in prayer, in reading, in walking, I felt God's presence with me I think more tangibly than I've ever felt before. It was almost as if I could sense that Jesus was right there. Um, there was one funny thing that happened. I, I, I was walking around, couldn't see anybody, and the mist was coming in, and I was freezing cold, and it was raining. And I, I was feeling, it was a bit bleak as well as, I mean, I had this experience, right? And then it, then it was getting you know, a bit of up and down, it was a bit bleak, and I went around the corner, and I saw grazing um, 12 llama llamas. They were our llamas because they, they'd carried up the tents. We just had to carry our backpacks with our food and clothes. And, and I had this kind of instant thought of Jesus in the wilderness. And, and, and one of the, in one of the accounts in the Gospels, it says he was tended to um, by wild animals. I thought, this is so cool. I, I did keep my distance, though. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't let them tend to me. Um, so... So why pray? We pray because, one, we can't not pray. Two, because we pray to express our relationship with God and to be in touch with God and to experience God. And thirdly, we pray to cry out to God, asking him to act. You see, often, prayer is nothing like what happened on the mountaintop in Colorado, basking in his love and his presence. It's more like a wrestling match 
maybe even without any clear sense of God even showing up for it. Again, let's turn to our original prayer book, the book of Psalms, for examples. There are many, many prayers of complaint, of cries for help, and expressions of the sense, not of God's closeness, but of his absence. Let me give you just two examples. In Psalm 10, it begins, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself from me in times of trouble? In Psalm 13, the psalmist cries, How long, O Lord, will you forget? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And I can think of circumstances about which and people for whom I have cried out to God, asking him, begging him to act, and I've heard nothing. Nothing. Anyone else have that experience? Yeah. I think of a time when I, I lay down in front of the, the altar at Ascension. It was one night, I was working late, there was no one in the building, and I was crying out for God's help, crying out for his intervention in my life. I was begging him to act. But there was only silence. I felt only his absence. So I wonder, does that mean that God wasn't listening? Or that he was mad at me? Or that he didn't care? No. It meant that his ways are not my ways. And of course, as my face was pressed to the oriental runner in front of the altar, and I could not see the full pattern, God, the maker of heaven and earth, and that runner, could see everything. Sometimes when I pray and feel God's absence, I feel like Job, remember in the Old Testament, who said, even though he slay me, I will hope in him. I love the next bit, however. Yet, I will argue my ways to his face. <laughs> I have done that. Mm -hmm. So why do we pray? We pray because, one, we can't not pray. Two, because we pray to express our relationship and intimacy with God. And three, we pray to cry out to God for him to act. And four, we pray because we're not in this alone. We're not. Prayer is always communal. When God seems far off, when we don't get what we ask for or feel his presence, how then can we still pray? Well, let me tell you what I think is the most powerful reason why you can still pray, even then. It's that when we pray, we are not in glorious isolation. Because guess who is standing with you every time you pray? It is Jesus. Jesus, our mediator. Listen to these verses from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of what? Grace. Grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love that passage. And of course, it alludes to the ascension. Well, that's interesting for us at Church of the Ascension. Think on this for a moment. Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. What's he doing there? Interceding. Interceding. Who's he interceding for? Right. Jesus is praying to the Father for you. Hebrews 7.25, Jesus is able for all time to save those who approach God through him since, listen to this, he always lives to make intercession for them. Wow. The whole Trinity is involved. We pray to the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit helps us. Likewise, again from Hebrews 7, 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. In Ephesians, St. Paul urges the church to be praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. You know, if you stop talking to your friend or your child or your spouse, if you don't spend time with them, those relationships will absolutely and inevitably be the poorer for it. I mean, that's obvious, right? You don't talk to someone, don't spend time with someone. What kind of a relationship will you have with that person? Well, how much more is that true of spending time in the presence of God? Tim Keller describes prayer as both conversation and encounter with God. And these two concepts give us a definition of prayer and a set of tools for deepening our prayer lives. Conversation and encounter. Prayer is both awe and intimacy and struggle and reality. When we pray, We are joining with the saints, that great company of believers, past, present, and future, in prayer and praise. And we're joining with the Holy Trinity. And we have right there with us Jesus, our intercessor. So why pray? Because one, we can't not pray. Because two, we pray to express our relationship with God. And three, we pray to cry out to God, asking him to act. And four, we're not in this alone. And finally, fifthly, when we pray, stuff happens. Hallelujah. The outcomes of prayer. Archbishop William Temple once said, when I pray, coincidences happen, and when I don't, they don't. (laughs) Last week, uh, we had, um, this is really fun. Um, So in our community group, we've been challenging uh, one another to invite our neighbors into our homes. Um, I am ashamed to say I don't know most of my neighbors. Uh, Some of them, I don't even know their names, and it's pitiful, right? I've lived there 15 years. Well, 
It's a new day in 122 Westchester Place for all kinds of reasons. Um, one of them is here, and you'll hear from Andrea very shortly. So anyway, we were doing our duty in our, as, as inviting our neighbours in. So we sent out some, some invitations, and we were getting rather worried. When was it that, and Andrea, we had, we'd had one reply, had we? Yeah, we had one reply, and that was a no. So we're feeling a little bit discouraged because it's like three days away. And so Andrea sends an email to, or text something to our community group and says, would you please pray? Because we've just had one no and we haven't heard from anybody else. And then, was it, when was it? The next day, she checks her emails and lo and behold, three people said they were coming. I mean, a coincidence, I know, I know, coincidence, I got it. Funny how coincidence happen when you pray. It's a trivial example, and I can't prove it was God orchestrating anything. But anyway, I just wanted to share that. Um, right, what else was I going to say? Oh, yes, so that was pretty instant gratification for someone praying, right? Um, some prayers we may not see answered in our lifetime. We may not ever see them answered. It doesn't mean God hasn't answered them. It's just we may not recognize that. But, you know, and I mentioned this earlier. Seriously, I've been thinking this week. You know, we've got over 100 kids here this weekend. Extraordinary. And I think of Ruby Johnson. Remember, anybody remember Ruby Johnson? Wonderful lady. Great hats. Oh, lovely. Um, John Clark, who was here year after year. I don't know. He probably came here 30 times. And when they were younger, they prayed when we didn't have kids or hardly any. And, and some of them didn't didn't see, well, they didn't see the hundred and however many we've got here today, obviously. Um, and so we don't know when or how our prayers will be answered. But I say stuff happens. The other thing that happens is that prayer changes us. How can it not? Because we're standing or kneeling or walking with or whatever in the presence of a holy God. Quoting Edmund Clowney who said, the Bible does not present an art of prayer. It presents the God of prayer. Keller writes, we should not decide how to pray based on the experiences and feelings we want. Instead, we should do everything possible to behold our God as he is. And prayer will follow. The more clearly we grasp who God is, the more our prayer is shaped and determined accordingly. So why pray? Because we can't not pray, because we pray because we want to be in relationship with God. We pray to cry out to God, asking him to act. Fourthly, we're not in this alone, and when we pray, stuff happens. Andrea. For the next few minutes, we're going to think about to whom do we pray? But first this, a kindergarten teacher was observing her classroom of children while they drew pictures, and occasionally she'd walk around the room to see the children's work. What are you drawing, she asked one little girl who was dil diligently working at her desk. The girl replied, I'm drawing God. Her teacher paused and said, no one knows what God looks like. The little girl replied, they will in a minute. <laughs> the kindergarten teacher is right, of course, because God is invisible and immortal and eternal. That comes from uh, 1 Timothy. And yet, like the little girl, we all hold images of God in our minds and in our imaginations. So what do you think the little girl was drawing? 
What do, you, what do you think you would draw? The images of God we have formed in our minds in the, are basically a reflection of the ideas we have about him and how he feels about us. And these images, these portraits can help or hinder our prayer life. Let's think together about what do we know about God from the scriptures. When we think about biblical metaphors, symbols, or images used to illustrate or describe God in the Bible, what images come to mind? What's that? A shepherd? A father? A singer, a what? Oh, um, a mother hen. Okay, mother hen, yeah. Uh, how about a priest, a king, Jesus? These are all images um, of God. Metaphors are, and symbols are helpful, but of course there's always limit to, limits to our analogies. Alan Coppage, in his book Portraits of God, writes this. No role or image from this world will, perfectly will be perfectly adequate to explain a transcendent, that is a holy other, God. That is one of the reasons why so many different analogies are used to describe him. The various roles condition one another and help us to see God more perfectly." End quote. It's sort of like facets of a diamond, different views, different angles. So biblical portraits um, help us see God more clearly. And notice that these uh, um, illustrations that we just uh, enumerated are all relational. They show that God is personal. They show various aspects of the nature and character of God, that he is all holy, all powerful, and just. They show that God is kind and loving and good. Aidan Wilson Tozer, who's the author of the classic Knowledge of the Holy, wrote this. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Think about that. I know it challenges me to examine my thoughts about God. Tozer goes on. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man or we could say woman, is not what he at any, what he at a, a given time may say or do, but what in his deep heart, or in her heart, conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but the company of Christians that compose the church." End quote. The challenge, of course, is that our relationships are influenced by our life experiences. And for many of us, our relationships have been damaged or distorted or been marred. 
And we often bring these to our notions of God. And while many of us would like to think we have high images of God, and many of you indeed do, many more of us have images that are slightly out of focus. And people give themselves away by how they speak about God. Have you ever heard people say, God hit me on the side of the head with a two-by-four? Or a baseball bat? God hit me with a baseball bat. That's pretty angry and violent. No, thank you. How about this? They call God the man upstairs. Now, that's just creepy. <laughs> Not to mention d distant. And then this is a southern thing. Referring to God as sweet baby Jesus. Sweet baby Jesus. Cute and cuddly and domesticated God. Something that they can control and hold on to. Of course... These images would cause us to distance ourselves from the high and holy, lifted up, perfect, pure, and loving God. But let's face it, we sometimes project our human experiences onto God. If our father or parent was distant or angry or absent, God may be, the image of God as father may be a fearful thing. If we have been misjudged or found ourselves on the short end of the stick, the image of God as judge may be feared. If we only heard messages of condemnation and damnation when we're in church or have suffered abuse at the hands of the church or a church worker or a minister, then God as priest may be terrifying. If authority figures have negatively impacted our lives, then God as king or ruler would not be of comfort. And if you've had no exposure to sheep and shepherds, then this image of the good shepherd might just be baffling. However, this is one of my most favorite images because of my life experience. I'm one of six. And when we were little kids, my dad would bring us one by one up to our beds doing something he called the lamb's carry. He would take each of us, put us over his neck, holding our hands and our feet, and carry us up the stairs and then gently deposit us into our beds. And it was called the lamb's carry. So we would, he would have a chorus at nighttime of cheering, I want my lamb's carry. So for me, with a sheep, sheep and shepherd, to me that is just such a great uh, illustration and vision of God picking me up and carrying me just like my daddy did. It was a sad day when you were too big to, to do it. <laughs> Yet God's love and God is so much bigger than what our minds can even fathom. Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. J.I. Packer, an Anglican theologian, wrote in Evangelism in the Sovereignty of God, writes this, A God whom we could understand exhaustively and whose revelation of himself confronted us with no mysteries whatsoever would be a God in man's image and therefore an imaginary God and not the God of the Bible at all. So while God is greater than we can conceive, he does want to be known. 
He reveals himself in nature, in scripture, and he also reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. This is God in nature. The heavens tell of the glory of God. The skies display his marvelous craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is silent in the skies, yet their message has gone out to all the earth in their words to the whole world. God wants to be known. He's making himself known. In scripture, there are many names of God that reveal aspects of his character. You probably know tons of them. I'm just going to remind you of three. Jehovah Jireh, what does that mean? God will provide, right? Emmanuel, God with us. Abba, Father, or Papa, or Daddy. Yeah, these are just three little ways that we see that God wants to reveal himself. And then, of course, God reveals himself in the person of Jesus. Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus has uh, a parable that he told to reveal the character of God. And I want us to um, see how the impact of our image of God might have on how we read the scripture and how we perceive God. Um, Take out your green sheet. Jonathan's going to come up and read this for us. Your green half sheet and... It has Luke 18, 1 through 8 at the top of it. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city, there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my opponent. For a while, he refused. But later, he said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let's begin with the end in mind. What's the purpose of this teaching? It's in the very first line. To always pray and never give up. Yeah, never give up. Here's a little private assignment to give you just half a minute to think about this. Jot a note or two on what do you take from this parable? What do you think is going on? What do you think God's like?
All right, so our reading of this parable is revealing. So we're going to look at three questions. Is Jesus setting out a comparison? Is Jesus setting out a contrast? Which one better reflects the image of God? Which best reveals the image of God? So let's look at it first. If this is a comparison, we have two main characters. We've got the widow and we've got the judge. And what do we know about widows in the, um, in the first century? They have no status. They are, um, they're basically abandoned people, forgotten, unseen, just really, um, it's a very difficult life if you're a first century uh, widow. So we know from the story that she's on her own because she's coming to the judge by herself. Um, she doesn't belong to anybody. She doesn't have any family who's coming with her, and she has no, no advocate in front of this judge. And what do we know about the judge? He's a pain in the butt. <laughs> All right, we could say he's stoic and uncaring. We can say the guy is heartless. He's absolutely heartless. And he's, he's distant. He's far away. He's, he's just pushing her, you know, talk to the hand kind of thing. He's away. And what, what moves him? His own comfort, nagging, moves him. That's what causes him to act. In fact, in the, in the Greek, that, that word she, that she keeps coming at him means he's, he's basically afraid of getting a black eye. <laughs> you know, it's basically being punched in the face by this woman's constant coming to him. So read as a comparison, then we're like the woman, and God is like the judge. So is Jesus saying that we're forgotten, we're abandoned, disconnected, and have no advocate or access to God? Is Jesus saying that God is stoic and uncaring and heartless and distant and only moved by nagging, pleading to wring a blessing out of him? Uh, the answer is obvious, no. But now, let's think about it if this is a contrast. If the woman is sort of on her own and forgotten. The contrast is this. We are in a favored position through Christ. We are the beloved. We are the beloved. And while she's sort of alone and out there by herself, Jesus says, we're adopted. We belong. And if she's disconnected and doesn't have family, Jesus is saying, you have brothers and sisters. I'm your brother. You have a family, your sons and daughters of God. And where she has no advocate, we have an advocate through our relationship with Jesus Christ. We are all those things. And here's the beauty of contrast, because it continues. The judge who's stoic and, and uncaring, is not at all like God. God is kind, and God is sympathetic, and God has a heart of compassion. And where the judge is heartless or hard-hearted, God is love, 
God is holy. God is righteous. And if that judge has distanced himself and is far away from her, God is present. What do we just say that Emmanuel means? God is with us, right? And where this judge is only moved by nagging, not God. God is responsive. So it's obvious this is to be read as a contrast, not a comparison. Don't put up your hand, but do look back at your note. I wonder if you might have thought maybe, maybe you had to do a bit of begging to get God's attention. Maybe you had to keep coming at him. Maybe you were alone, thinking you were alone in it. If that's somewhere in what you might have been thinking when you heard this, maybe you might need to recalibrate your image of God. Maybe. Uh, maybe you'll be invited this weekend to ask God to heal a distorted image. Pray always and never give up because God loves us. He's for us and he responds to our prayers. And what is mysterious, however, is how God answers prayer. Yeah. All of us could tell stories about, uh, about the mysterious answerings of God. But I heard one writer um, talk about how God answers prayer using four words that all kind of rhyme. Sometimes God says, no which is usually because it wouldn't be good for us if he answered it. I love the country songs. I sometimes thank God for unanswered prayers. It was like Garth Brooks or something. That's like a great, <laughs> a great line from a song, except he goes on to the creepy thing, and he talks about the man upstairs. Um, sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says go. Yes, he answers it, just like the, putting the neighbor in front of me. Sometimes he says slow. Slow. I need to put things in order. I need to put you in order to be able to receive it. Sometimes other things need to happen, but things are happening. And sometimes he says, grow. You can take that however you want it. But I like that. I think it was Bill Hybels that said that in, in one of his books. But it's, just a, it's a nice way, because sometimes we think, if we don't hear something, nothing's happening. But that could not be further from the truth. Anyway. Um, so how might our distorted images of God be healed? Here's just three quick ideas. One, prayerfully identify any warped images you have based on your known life experiences. You don't have to go digging for stuff. But if you know things have happened in your life that God hasn't been well modeled for whatever reason. Identify that and do a few things. Remember that God loves you, is with you, and is for you. Second, perhaps you want to process with a friend or your community group, or, or maybe in silence, maybe you'll soak in prayer, bringing it to God. And as you rest in his presence, you may want to confess, that is, Tell God. Tell God what you've actually been thinking of him. And then repent and tell him you're sorry. You, you want a high image, but you've actually been carrying around maybe an image that isn't worthy of 
who God is. So tell him you're sorry. And then receive his forgiveness. Accept God's pardon. And then rejoice. Live as one forgiven. So confess, repent, receive, rejoice. God loves you. He's for you. He's with you. Second thing you might do to heal this uh, distorted image of God is study the scriptures looking for how God actually reveals himself. Back to J.R. Packer, this time from his book Knowing God. He says, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into a, into a matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. So it's turning what we know about God into knowledge of God. And then be persistent like the widow. Be alert and be prepared to be amazed. Joni Erickson Tata said this, one of the most wonderful things about knowing God is that there's always so much more to know so much more to discover. Just when we least expect it, he intrudes into our neat, tidy notions about who he is and how he works. Jonathan will now lead us um, in a prayer so that we could bring our hearts to God. Thank you, Andrea. So you remember at the beginning I said there were three things that I wanted us to do, and that was to learn about prayer, and that's the teaching that's going to be continuing throughout the weekend. Secondly, to actually pray, and thirdly, to, to take home and, and form habits of prayer. Well, in terms of the praying, that's what we're going to do right now. And so there are three ways that we're going to do that this evening. One is there's the soaking prayer that I mentioned earlier at nine. At ten, there's Compline or night prayer in the youth lodge. And But before that, we're going to pray uh, here together and we're going to do it in two ways one is prayer by collect and you'll see there's the collect for purity under your hearts and then the other which you may be less familiar with is prayer by post-it note and you should have a post-it note so let me explain the prayer by post-it note um this heart-shaped uh, note represents or it will when you write on it uh, and this is private uh, just between you and god um you know, we say this prayer, if you look at it on your sheets, every Sunday at the start of our service. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. So tonight, right now, Almighty God, your heart is an open book to him. All your desires are known to him, and nothing is hidden. Not in a scary way but just in a, in, a in a matter of fact way, this is just how it is. And so what I want you to do, and we'll have a time of quiet so you can do this individually, is I want you to, first of all, ask the Holy Spirit to help you in this exercise, to help you think, to help you ponder, and we'll be quiet when we do it. Um, and I don't know what the Holy Spirit might prompt you about. Uh, maybe there is a burden that Jesus would have you lay down. Maybe there is an incredible burning desire of your heart, and you'll know without any, anybody's help what that is because it's, it's on your heart, um, and you want to offer that to the Lord. Um, maybe there's something on your heart that needs to be cleansed, needs to be healed. Maybe you have a wounded heart, a broken heart, a fractured heart. Maybe you have an attitude that needs desperately to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus.
But whatever it is, what I want you to do is write your private prayer. This is not a long prayer. This is between you and God. He, 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 he'll even understand your shorthand. He can even read my handwriting. Um, and what I want you to do is, on your way out tonight, you'll see there are some illuminated trees, little birch trees with lights on. Well, on the table next to those trees, are two, there's a box on each side, and it has this prayer, the, the colic for purity, or a bit of it, uh, on the front of that box, and you simply post your uh, post-it note through the slot. No one's going to look at it. I'm not going to look at it. We're not, you know. Um, what we are going to do, though, is on Sunday morning, those boxes we're going to put on the altar. And so when we pray the prayer together, and we'll pray it tonight, but when we pray it on Sunday, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, your heart's desire will be on the altar as we pray. Um, so are you clear about the task? You're going to write your heartfelt need to God on this post-it note. By the way, there's tons more of these different colors by the boxes. So if this isn't enough because you've got more than one thing on your heart, you can have another one. And maybe tomorrow you'd like to write another one anyway. Well, you can have at it throughout the weekend. You can post your notes to God. So let's um, pause. What I'm going to do is... Um, yeah, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. We're going we're gonna to just take a couple of minutes for you to, to pray, to think, to be still, and to write. And then I'll hold the silence, so don't worry about your watches. Uh, I'll call us together and invite us to pray the Collect for Purity together tonight uh, to finish our session here. So let's just be still. Let's now gather up our prayers in the Collect for Purity, which we will say together. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. I wonder how God will answer our prayers, the prayers of our hearts.